We're going to turn to Genesis chapter 9 this morning. Have you found it? All right. Hear the word of God, Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 17, and this will be the word of the Lord for us this morning. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said... This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Let's pray together. Father, as we bow before you, we recognize that there's a lot to learn this day. Your word is rich. Your word is full. Your word is, well, inspired by you. And it's profitable for teaching, reproof, and correction, and training in righteousness. That the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God, would you teach us and rebuke us? Train us in righteousness? Equip us for every good work. We trust you. And we ask you for your work and your spirit that you would be glorified. It is a good thing when your people sit under the teaching of your word. Let your teaching of your word be inspired this day. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Um, Last week... 
We walked through one of the most dramatic stories in all the Bible. We studied the global flood. We studied Noah's Ark. We saw the judgment of God for the sin of humanity. And everything died except for those who were rescued in the ark. And we saw at the end of chapter 8 that the waters went down and the land dried up. And God sent Noah and his family out of the ark along with all the animals that he had rescued. And the world was changed. You've got to think about this, right? If you're Noah, you walk out of the ark, everything on earth looks different. All the geography you knew before the flood, has changed, right? Mountains are going to be in places that you never saw mountains before. Rivers are going to be running in different courses. New forests are going to grow where there used to be different kinds of land. And the first thing that Noah did after leaving the ark, probably besides taking a really deep breath of non-animal scented air, (laughs) was to build an altar and to make a sacrifice of some of the clean animals. It was a burnt offering before the Lord. And when God smelled the offering, he said at the end of chapter 8, this is good, and he pronounced a blessing on Noah. And for the first time in a long time in the Bible, things seemed to be going the right direction. So now what? Once all the thunder and lightning is gone, what's next? I mean, wouldn't you be wondering that if you were Noah? What's life going to be like? What's the future going to hold? Well, in our passage for today, we get to see God help Noah understand two big deals. One, God is going to talk to Noah about the significance of life on earth. And he's going to show Noah some really important truths about a promise that he's making. So, truths about life and a major promise to help Noah know what's next, what comes after I walk out of the ark. So if you're a note-taker, be ready for two major points. And the first one, just so you know, is going to have about four sub-points in it. So let's go ahead and get started. Let's look at this passage in its two parts, right? Point number one is going to be the call that you would develop a biblical view of life. Develop a biblical view of life. And when I say that, by the way, don't think I'm meaning like, Oh, how do you see life, dude? I'm meaning life as in life and death, as in the value of human life. That's what I mean, okay? So, verses 1 through 7 here of Genesis 9, God has a lot to say to Noah about the value of life on earth and some things that are very important. We'll see four things that are major life and ethical issues that God speaks to as Noah begins this new life in a new world. So the first sub-point, you can call it A if you want, or sub-point 1 if you want, however you want to do that. Value marriage and procreation, or children, as good. Value marriage and children as good. Okay. Look at verses 1 and 7, because they sort of bookend the passage. Verse 1 says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Then verse 7 it says, And you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. Now, way back in Genesis chapter 1, after the first creation, right, God pronounced a blessing on the people that he had made. Genesis 1, 28 and 29, which sounds a lot like this, by the way, says, And God blessed them. 
And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. Doesn't that sound a lot like what we read a moment ago? So here we go. After God in Genesis created humanity, in chapter 1, Adam and Eve, he blessed them and he commanded them to be fruitful and to multiply. He commanded them to fill the earth. And God charged the people that he had made to rule over the earth, right? Giving them a stewardship over creation. And God told the people, you guys are free to eat of any of the trees here except for one. So then when we look at the beginning of Genesis chapter 9, we see in verses 1 and 7 that God is really repeating the blessing. It's like he has recreated the earth and he's calling Noah and his family to play a role that was really very similar to what Adam and Eve were called to play. They are to be fruitful, they are to multiply, they are to fill the earth. So both after creation and after the flood, God magnifies the significance of marriage and the family. God magnifies the significance of marriage and of of procreation, of having children. God shows us here that the family is the foundational institution of all human society. Now you might say, how can you say that here? How can you say God's emphasizing an understanding of marriage as central to society here? Well, think about it. When Noah got on the ark, who went with him? Noah did not enter the ark alone. Nor did Noah enter the ark with a harem of women, which would have allowed for the most efficient reproduction of the human race, right? I'm not saying it would have been pleasant. I'm saying it would have been efficient. If Noah had a hundred wives... There'd have been a lot faster reproduction. What did Noah do, though? Noah and his three sons entered the ark, and each man on the ark had one and only one wife. And this was what God chose to allow to survive. Back at Genesis 4, we saw an evil man named Lamech. And he gave us the first perversion of the institution of marriage because he married multiple women. But when God chose to save a righteous man and his family, there was a simple union. One man, one woman, for as long as each lived. That was what God was affirming. And by doing this, God shows us that marriage is intended to be a lifelong union of one man and one woman. The pattern for human life is that one man marries one woman and hopefully children can spring from that union. Now, we know, we know that not every person is able to get married. Not everybody has that blessing. And we know that not every marriage is blessed with children. And we hurt with those who don't get that joy. But the expectation, the norm in human life is that we would follow this pattern, right? You get married, have little ones. Now, why in the world you've got to be thinking, would we take time to say this, right? Because this is obvious, isn't it? Why would we need to make an obvious point? 
I would say to you the reason we do is because we live in a society that is trying to undo everything that God has established, including what God has said to us about marriage and children. For example, our society has attempted to devalue marriage. How? How common is divorce in our culture? This doesn't honor God, folks. God did not intend for marriages to end. Now, I would argue that the Bible allows for divorce to take place. But it does so only as a concession to the sinfulness of humanity. And it does so for the protection of people who would otherwise be dramatically, drastically abused. But make no mistake about it, folks. Divorce is not a human good. It's an attack on the institution of marriage. The American embrace of so-called no-fault divorce, that's one of the greatest evils our nation has ever allowed to happen. And the silence of the Christian church on this topic, allowing people to believe that their individual desires about getting married or getting divorced, that silence, that, 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 that allowing people to believe that this is none of the church's business, what I do in my house with my family, that is one of the greatest failures of American Christianity. Now, if you're here and you're a Christian and you've been divorced, don't hear me condemning you. That's not what I'm doing. But you've got to recognize no divorce can take place without at least one party to the divorce committing a grievous sin. Do you understand that? There's no possible way to have a divorce happen in which at least one party is not greatly in the wrong. Now, there could be in a divorce one innocent party or one mostly innocent party. In many, many cases, both people share guilt. We, we know God's gracious. We know that there's mercy for sinners. But don't, don't, don't let's think that divorce is no big deal. Instead, we need to confess sin and repent and find mercy in Christ. How else do we devalue marriage? Well, in our world, we're trying to redefine marriage, aren't we? Societally, our nation has passed laws saying that men can marry men and women can marry women, and this is contrary to biblical teaching. It's not something the church can righteously embrace, not because we're hateful people. Hopefully we're not. Not because we're not sympathetic or understanding to people that, that are going through things that we're not going through. But... We can't approve of a definition of marriage that's different than what God says. We don't approve of marriages between more than two people. One man, one woman, united. That's the goal. But also in society, I, the goodness of children is under attack. Think of how many couples that you will hear say, well, we're not going to have children because we don't want to be slowed down in our lives. There's a lot of people that just don't even think about children and marriage going together. But besides that, our culture attacks the goodness of children through abortion. We live in a world, folks, that doesn't understand the blessings God pronounced on Noah and his family when he said, you guys, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. It's good. So let me say it to us again. We need to value marriage and we need to value children as a good thing. 
God made marriage. God defines marriage as one man and one woman united in covenant for life. Under normal circumstances, married people are supposed to be having kids and raising them to the glory of God. We've got to get this right as a church, even if the world around us has lost its mind here. So that's our first subpoint: Value marriage and procreation as good. But look at our second subpoint: B, value humanity above animals. By the way, talk about an obvious point, right? Value humanity above animals. Look at verses 2 and 3. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So next God tells Noah about some changes that are coming in the relationship between humanity and the animal kingdom. Back in Genesis 1, we were called to subdue the earth. We were called to rule the earth. Here, God tells Noah that the animals are now going to have a fear of you that seems not to have been there before. Something's changed in the way critters and people interact. Back in the garden... God told Adam, you are allowed to eat of any tree, any plant you want. Here, for the first time, God specifically says to Noah, humans are allowed to eat animals for food. Now, I'm not saying that nobody was eating animals for food before the flood, but here's the first time in the Bible we have a clear statement from God that eating meat is okay. And you've got to admit, this is quite a blessing for many of us. I once heard a man say, if God didn't intend us to eat animals, he wouldn't have wrapped them in meat. (laughs) I approve. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not wrong if somebody wants to be a vegetarian or a vegan. God bless you. I don't understand you, but... By the way, did you hear about the person that did, like, was a vegan and got into CrossFit? They didn't know what they were supposed to brag about first. It was very... (laughs) No, really, it's okay. If someone chooses, I'm not eating meat for their own reasons, God bless you. That's fine. But the Bible's clear that part of being human is we get to eat critters. That's good. Now, what these verses indicate to us, besides dietary regulations, is that mankind is superior to the animal kingdom. God made man in his own image. We were created by God in a different way than were the animals. We were given by God a different value and a different role to play than God gave animals. Now, why, Travis, would you need to make that point? Doesn't everybody in the world realize that people are more important than animals? Nope. (laughs) Anybody watch the news a couple weeks ago? May 28th, three-year-old child gets his way into a gorilla enclosure at a Cincinnati zoo. Zookeepers shoot the gorilla to protect the child and the world went absolutely nuts. On May 31st, 
A Washington Post article declared that the shooting of the gorilla has led to outrage. The article specifically cited an internet comment from an angry person from Denmark who said, and I quote, shooting an endangered animal is worse than murder. Nobody should be happy that the gorilla got shot in the zoo. But it is moral insanity to declare that the shooting of a gorilla is as bad as the murder of a human being. We live in a world that doesn't understand that there's a significant difference between people and animals. Probably because many of them grew up believing that we're just the same as animals because we came from the same thing, which is not true. So let me be plain from Scripture. People are more valuable than animals. No animal is worth the life of a human. To have a biblical worldview demands that we see that mankind is superior to the animal kingdom in the sight of God. Now, third sub-point. Sub-point C. Properly care for animals. What a nice little balancing point, right? Properly care for animals. Look at verse 4. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Now, before we assume, folks, that if we are more valuable than animals, we can abuse animals, notice that verse 4, God God tells Noah, listen, you get to eat meat, but God puts limits. He says you don't eat meat with the blood still in it. Now, This is not a command about whether or not your steak can be medium rare. Which is the only godly way to eat a steak, I want you to know. Those of you who burn the flavor out of meat, I'm judging you. So, uh, but the command here is about the significance of life. The blood coursing in an animal's veins is symbolic of the life of the animal. And God says, I own that life. And God commands that as people prepare to eat animals, they respect that life. God wants to prevent savagery in the way that people deal even with the animals that they will kill for food. And y'all, you guys already know about me. I grew up redneck. You know this, right? We, we, we hunted deer and ate them because deer are yummy. If, you, if you're a Bambi fan, I'm sorry, but it, they're yummy. But you know what? We were taught to respect that animal. My dad, one of the things that would make my dad as angry as anything in the world would be when people would come down to our little neck of the woods from the big city and had no idea what they were doing. That story about someone taking a bait, you know, like a calf to a check-in station thinking it was a deer, is, those are true. Those were, you'd see guys dragging a goat in saying, I got me a deer. No, you didn't. That, that really happened. We made fun of city people like you wouldn't believe where I grew up. One of the things that made my dad the maddest of anything, though, was when you hear somebody talk about taking a really extra long shot at an animal. You never, never as a hunter take a shot at an animal you don't know you can put down because it's brutal and cruel and wasteful and foolish. But you know what? Not a lot of the world understands that stuff. I would argue 
that this section calls for Christians to have a very proper mindset toward conservation. We eat animals, but we should also be about protecting animals. Why? How can you say both things? Animals are less valuable than us, but animals have value. Their lives belong to God, and we dare not waste God's property without cause. Now, you want something fun to think about here? I think it's really important to see the claim of God on the blood of animals in the light of the sacrificial system. When a person killed an animal as an offering to God in the Old Testament, the person was not giving to God something that belonged to the person. No. Those who made sacrifices were being graciously given the life of the animal by God. So in the Old Testament, just like today, God wasn't only the one to whom a sin offering was made, God was also the one who provided the only offering to be made that could cover our sin. God did all the work to forgive sinners, including providing the very life of the offering that would satisfy his own wrath. That, you, you guys see how that already points us to Jesus, right? God says, that blood's mine. So if you give it to me, you're giving me my stuff. Well, Jesus, the Son of God, provided the ultimate and only real lifeblood sacrifice for the sins of God's children. And we see just a hint of it right here. Last sub-point in this section. Sub-point D Protect human life. Protect human life. Look at 5 and 6. And for your life blood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it. And from man, for, uh, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So finally here, we see that God speaks directly to the value of human life. If God requires an accounting for the shed blood of animals, if he cares about the lives of animals, how much more will God be concerned about the lives of human beings? Here God makes it plain, folks, that the kind of violence and murder that marked the pre-flood world is completely unacceptable. In order to value life, God declares that he will require life from the one who murders. In Genesis 9-6, God affirms a righteous and careful application of capital punishment. The death penalty for murder. Verse 6 is interesting because it's a poetic text. Those of you who did Psalms with us on Wednesday night, how do we know that's a poetic text? Little short lines right there, right? Little, little short lines, little parallel thoughts happening. And there's a promise of death to be delivered to any man who sheds the blood of another man. Now, obviously, from later scripture especially, we understand this is about intentionally taking the life of another human being, doing it on purpose. Now, why is death, and think about this, this is significant, why 
is death the proper punishment for murder? God tells us in the final line of verse 6, death is the proper penalty for murder because mankind has been created in the image of God. It's because we exist as representatives of the glory of God that murdering another human being is vastly different than killing an animal. It is because we exist as a reminder to the world of the presence and rule of God that murdering another human being is an attack on God himself. Let me unpack that. When we studied Genesis chapter 1, 27, we saw that God made mankind, men and women, in his own image. And one understanding of being made in the image of God is that you and I exist to show the world the glory and the greatness of God. The reason you breathe is because God wants you to show the world how great he is. But another possible understanding of image is that we exist as evidence that God is the ruler. God is the king. As a king's statue declared in the old days, you see that statue, you know who rules the land, right? So living human beings are to display to the earth that God is the king. So to murder another human being is for you to attack the very rule and authority of God and to say to uh, to others, God is not over all. I will not follow God. He does not matter. And that is a vile rebellion. And God says that the just punishment for that was death. Now, what about the objections? Listen, we need to be sure, absolutely sure, that the court system functions justly and that the rule of law guarantees to the best of our ability that the death penalty is never carried out without due process. Some people would say our nation is too corrupt to faithfully do justice here. But that argument is not an argument against the biblical view of capital punishment. What it is is an argument against a society that is less just and more corrupt than it should be. But throughout Scripture, death has always been the punishment for murder. Exodus 21.12, Leviticus 24.21, those are examples of, of, of that penalty. Numbers 35 clearly tells us that there's a different, there's a different punishment between, for someone who kills someone accidentally and someone who kills somebody on purpose. Numbers 35 also requires a really high level of eyewitness testimony in order to allow for the death penalty to be applied. You couldn't just pop it down there if you thought a guy might be guilty. In the New Testament, Paul affirms the government's God-given responsibility to put to death those who murder. That's Romans 13, 1-5. But what's the point? This really isn't all about the death penalty. You know what this is about? The fact that nothing, nothing is like a human life. Nothing on earth is so valuable as human life. To intentionally take a human life is to attack God and to earn death. So church, it must be our position that we will do what we can to protect life in every way possible. That means that we will value human life from conception to natural death. That's our position. We do our part to protect babies in the womb, living humans who are under grave threat in our abortion craze culture. 
we will oppose euthanasia because it's an effort to prematurely end human life for convenience sake as we age. We will not devalue life by allowing real human lives to be sacrificed even for potential scientific advancement like we see in biomedical experiments. Do you ever wonder why is everybody so freaked out about the old... Do you remember when the stem cell issue was such a big deal? Look, scientists were creating, but putting real human life together to kill it to do research. Now, not all stem cells are that way. There's a way to use adult stem cells that doesn't put any life at risk whatsoever. But embryonic stem cell research was always the murder of a living human being. It's not okay, even if the benefits were, were going to be good. And we're careful to protect life, Christians. This means you've got to think hard when you think about reproductive technologies, right? How can I help somebody have a baby? There are ways that people do that that actually lead to, to being careless with human life. Or we need to think about it when we think about birth control. That there are methods of birth control that actually risk abortions even if the people aren't thinking about it. We need to be wise as we think about life and we need to protect the life of any human being who has not himself forfeited his life through murder. I could go on, but you get the idea. Life is precious. This is what God shows us most. As Noah left the ark, God taught Noah, value marriage, value children, care for animals, think they're yummy, but... Value human life above all other creation because it glorifies God whose image we wear. And that call is still present for Christians today. Now, let's really quickly look at the big promise that God makes. He gives it to Noah and to all living things. Our second, the major point. Point number two, thank God for, the, for his covenant with Noah. Thank God for his covenant with Noah. Look at verse uh, 8 through 11 first. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I am establishing my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Back in Genesis chapter 6, as Noah was getting on the ark and building it, God promised Noah a covenant was coming. Here we see it happen. Now a covenant is like if you could mix, mix together a contract that's really legally binding and a human promise or a vow, a covenant is like the strongest side of both of those. It's the most extreme commitment we see in the Bible. And the covenant here is between God and everything he's made. All kinds of creatures, every kind of animal that needed to be saved by living on the ark is the beneficiary of this covenant. And God's major promise here. What is it? Well, we'll see. He says, I'm never going to flood the earth again. What's cool is it's a unilateral promise. One-sided. Mankind has nothing to do to make this promise happen. The animals don't have to do anything right to make this happen. God says, I by myself promise, and you don't have to do anything to make this promise be kept. 
God says, so long as the world exists, he's never again going to destroy all life with a flood. Genesis 7 is never happening again. Now look at 12 through 17 of the verses. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. In the Bible there was often a sign given as a reminder of a promise or as a reminder of like a great victory one. You guys like the hymn, Come Thou Fountain of Every Blessing? You ever sing the Ebenezer verse? Our our songbook has it, you know, hitherto thy love has blessed me. But a lot of people sing the second verse, here I raise mine Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. And and everybody thinks of Scrooge and it messes us up. But... (laughs) But the word Ebenezer meant a stone that was set up to remind people of the victory of God, of the, of the kindnesses, of the blessings of God. Sometimes kings would put up a pillar or something on their borderline to say, remember, we've promised I'm not going to cross this to invade your land and you're not going to cross it to invade my land. Well, here God gives a sign of the covenant and the sign is, he says, my bow which, by the way, it really is the same word for like a war bow, but it's also a rainbow. And nothing here says, by the way, that rainbows never existed before. Because light had been bent by water droplets in the air before, whether it had ever rained or not. Waterfalls and fountain sprays make rainbows. But God here gives a brand new meaning and a new significance to the rainbow that had never been known before. So long as there's a sun, so long as there's water, so long as there's rain, so long as there are clouds, God says, I'm going to remember my promise never to let go and flood the earth again. And God's covenant with Noah, it's a continuation of the ultimate plan and the ultimate promise that the Bible has been carrying. God made people with a purpose. And the purpose that God made us for is going to be fulfilled. And when the devil tried to derail God's plan by tempting the woman back in the garden, God made a promise. God said to the devil, you know what? There's going to be someone who comes born from this woman's descendants who's going to crush you and set things right. Well, that promise rings in this promise. God says, I am not going to let my plan be derailed. I'm not going to let humanity cause the world to get wiped out. I'm not going to let it happen until I've wrapped things up the way I intend. So Christians, whenever you see a rainbow, don't allow the meaning of the rainbow to be stolen by somebody who would make it mean something else. Instead, 
When you see a rainbow, let other people know. You know that has a meaning. And it's a lot more important than any political or social cause out there. Rainbows are not about dreaming your dreams. They're not about visions or pots of gold or leprechauns or breakfast cereals. And they're not about homosexual causes. Rainbows are about the faithful forbearance of God. Rainbows remind us that God has chosen not to destroy us all, even though all of us deserve to be destroyed. Rainbows are about Jesus. Because, see, the sign of the covenant God made with Noah is a reminder that God withheld punishment that people deserved. God hung his bow in the clouds. Why? Because he knew eventually his justice would be served. God would punish Jesus for the sins of all who would come to him. God also knows that there's coming a day at the judgment seat of Christ. After Jesus returns, God is going to rightly do proper justice. People are either going to be rescued by coming under the grace of Christ, or they're going to be properly judged by a righteous God. But see, God is not, is not going to have to worry about doing justice. Either his justice is poured out on Jesus or it's going to be poured out on the sinner who rejects Jesus. So if you don't know Jesus, here's what I declare to you. We have all sinned against God. I'm not trying to call you a bad person. You're probably still a better person than me. Okay? But we've all sinned against God. Nobody's perfect. And that means we deserve to be judged by God. And Jesus is the only hope we have for salvation because none of us can get out of the mess we're in. So the call is this. Come to Jesus for mercy. He'll forgive anybody who turns away from their sin and puts their trust in Him for eternal life. If you want to know more about that, come talk to me. Come talk to me afterwards. Come talk to me at the baptism service today. We'll talk about it. And I'll help you to understand what it means to say to Jesus, I'm a sinner, please forgive me. And if you do know Jesus, let this whole passage cause you to think well about God and God's teaching on life and God's promises. God calls us to live by his standards and he is very faithful to his promises. So let's follow his ways. Let's view life the way God wants us to view life. Let's view marriage and family and animals and the world the way God wants us to view it. And most of all, Christians, let's give God thanks that he promised not to kill us the moment we sinned, but rather he promises us grace and eternal life in the Lord Jesus. Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you. Your passage, your word is so rich. And God, we are so weak. And there's so many ways that I think, man, we could have... We could have done so much more here today. But God, let this be enough. And let us follow you faithfully and love you deeply and value life rightly. There's so many ways you might change the way we think just from a passage like this. I pray you will. But most of all, Lord, I would pray that you would help us to follow you in faith. Let those who don't know you trust you. Let those who have trusted you again commit their lives to honoring you in all that we say and do.
We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.